So even though we're poor compared to the people around us, even us as college students can help take care of a child, an orphan um, in a third world nation. And there's so many kids that need help, that need clothing, that need food, that need education, that need somebody to share the gospel and the love of Jesus with them. And I would love to invite you to join with us. Our goal, our dream is that that back wall would have a hundred kids on it. Guess how many people we have in this room right now? A <laughs> little over a hundred. Amen. 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 I would lovingly challenge you to join with us. My wife and I have been sponsoring a child for a couple years now. And our goal is to sponsor some more. We want to have a number of faces up on that wall. We pray for our kids every single prayer meeting. Right? We have a special time during our Saturday Wellspring prayer meetings where we pray for all of our kids. So I encourage you, if you would like to consider it, please don't hesitate to talk to one of your, the house church leaders, if you have a house church leader, or otherwise you can talk to me or any of our staff. We would love to talk with you about partnering with us for about $40 a month. You can sponsor a child. Amen? Amen. Amen. All right. Would you open up your Bibles today to Matthew chapter 16? We are in a series on loving one another, loving one another. Last week we talked about how we need to love with boundaries, loving with boundaries. And that's because the reality is, as we try and love the people around us, inevitably we run into our own weaknesses, our own dysfunctions, our own hurts. Um, and we run into the weaknesses of others. So we talked about how to have wise boundaries so that we can protect ourselves from being hurt and so that we can love people even though they may respond in ways that uh, you wouldn't expect them to. So today we're going to be starting part one of correcting one another or loving through correction. Loving through correction. And this is going to be part one. We're going to um, finish up this, this talk next week, um, but this is about how love includes correction. Yeah. Love includes correction. Yeah. How many of you guys ever got corrected by somebody who loved you in your life? Mm. Hopefully that's everybody. <laughs> Hopefully that's everybody. Um, but we live in a culture where it can be difficult to understand how somebody's correction can be loving. We live in a culture that's very much affirming of, well, whatever you want to do is fine. And our culture kind of migrated to a place where it's more about affirmation um, and where it's harder to correct or to recognize that somebody is loving you through correction. And for us, that can be difficult as well. But I want to encourage you, one of the most important things that parents do is to correct their children, right? That's a very obvious way. Correction is how we stop somebody. We wake them up. We say, hey, this is dangerous. Hey, there's something dangerous in that direction. And guess what? If I see you going into a dangerous situation, how many of you guys know it's not loving for me to go, good job, you're doing great. Yeah. Right? That's not love. It's not love if I know what's going to happen to be encouraging you on the path that you're on already. In fact, it's love for me to say, hey, I love you so much that I need to tell you what the path that you're on is dangerous. The path that you're on is dangerous. And I'm willing to say that even if it makes you feel less me, even if I might potentially hurt you, even if it might strain our friendship, 
this is you're that important to me that I have to speak out about this. And that, that can be pretty difficult to do. So let me start with an example. Amen? Let's start with an example. Yesterday, somebody who was probably in this room <laughs> gave my son some money. Okay? Now, let me say right up front, I don't know who it was. My son's name is Judah. He didn't know who it was because I told him to give it back. He said, I don't know who it is. <laughs> and, and I said, okay, no problem. Um, I, so I don't know who it was that gave him money. And I want to say this. I know your heart. Your heart was to bless my son. And I want to say thank you so much for desiring to bless my son. I really do appreciate that. And in fact, it led to a really great conversation with my son. It started off not so great. Because what had happened is you had inadvertently doubled his savings. <laughs> you had doubled his savings. And moreover, he was convinced that it wasn't given to him. He earned that money. And he earned it by throwing a, a bean bag sack into a hole. And he's like, no, I earned this. And so we had to have a conversation. The first part of the conversation was, I'm sorry, Judah, you cannot keep the money. And imagine this for, you know, he just turned seven, a seven-year-old kid. You're taking away half his savings. <laughs> half of the savings is being taken from him. And the reason is because I'm trying to teach my son right now about how to manage his money. Yes, he's, he was six years old when we started this. But we're teaching him about the value of money and about saving and about being patient and about not buying everything you want. You know what happens with little kids when they realize that you can buy whatever they want? They ask you nonstop, right? Every time you see someone selling a churro, right? <laughs> Dad, buy me the churro. And if you say no, what's their natural inclination? You don't love me enough to buy me the truck, right? They look at you and you just look like you have unlimited money today, right? So I had to start teaching him why I had to say no sometimes to buying that churro or that ice cream or that toy or whatever it might be. And what we did was we started giving our children allowance, right? So every month our kids get allowance from us. And what happens when they say, Daddy, I want that churro. And what I say is, well, how badly do you want that churro? Yeah. Because you now have the power to buy that churro from your account. <laughs> and something magical happened when we started doing this. He started learning the value of money. He started to realize that if he bought that churro today, then he can't have that toy he's been saving for. Am I making sense? So it started to work. It was magic. We started going to toy stores, and instead of a constant, Daddy, buy me this, I want this, I want this one, he started to decide, I don't want it, I don't want any of them, Daddy. Wow. Isn't that amazing? <laughs> it's like magic. Right? Why? Because he realized that he's gotta save for a couple more months so that he can get the thing he really wants. Am I making sense? So when out of the, the love of your heart, right, you gave my son $6 and doubled his savings, he thought he'd hit the jackpot, right? And this is, this is natural for him, right? This is natural. He, 
he, all of a sudden I could see it. He was gonna go around and start asking everyone for money, right? He was gonna start seeing if he could throw another ball in a hole and get $6, right? Why? Because it just seemed like it had come to him so easily. So I say all of that to say, sometimes our hearts are in the right place, but we don't know what wisdom is. Am I making sense? And why should you? You are a college student. You do not have two children of your own. One day you will. One day you will. Amen? So don't worry. Your money has been donated to Jesus. And you can put it on your account. You can take it out of your tithe. No problem. It's in Jesus' hands now. Amen? Alright. So, open up to Matthew 16. I hope you have found it. We are going to be starting in verse 15. And this is Jesus talking with his disciples. And this is Jesus who says this. He says, but what about you, he asked, who do you say I am? And Simon Peter answered, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. And Jesus replied, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah. But this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my father in heaven. Okay, let's go ahead and pause right there. So what we see here is a statement that to us in the 21st century does not seem that significant. If you have gone to church ever in your life, you've probably heard that we believe that Jesus is the Son of the living God. But this was not common knowledge back in the first century. In the first century, Jewish people were waiting for this person that they called Messiah. Messiah literally means anointed one. Now that sounds kind of weird because we don't generally use the word anoint, right? Anoint means you get some oil and you smear it on something or someone. When was the last time you were anointed? Probably not many of you, right? Not something we do, but in the Old Testament, in the Bible, this was very significant because when God chose somebody to be king or to be a prophet or a priest, they would be anointed to signify this particular chosenness by God. So the, so the Jews of Jesus' day were waiting not for just a Messiah, someone who was chosen by God, but for the Messiah, the one who had been prophesied by every single major prophet in Israel, all of them had talked about a coming king that would lead the nation, that would conquer their enemies. And they were all waiting for it. In particular, one prophet named Daniel prophesied in roughly about 500 BC. He had prophesied this in Daniel chapter 9. He said, know and understand this. From the time the word goes out to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until the anointed one, the ruler, comes, there will be seven sevens and sixty-two sevens. That's weird. Uh, right? That's a weird one. What the heck does that mean? What it means is that Daniel and his people were in exile. Jerusalem was destroyed. But he prophesied that Jerusalem was going to be rebuilt. There was going to be somebody who declared that Jerusalem would be rebuilt. And when that happened, there would then be 62 sevens plus six sevens. And a little later on, he says one seven. Okay? I know that's weird. It's a prophecy. It's not supposed to be simple. <laughs> But if you add up all those numbers, what you get is 77s. 77s. 
And if you do the math, assuming that those sevens are years, you get 490 years. Praise God, I did not forget all of my math. Amen. <laughs> so what's my point? 490 years from the time of Daniel, who was prophesying around 500 BC, what do you get? You get great expectation in Israel right around the time that Jesus was born that there would be a coming Messiah. Am I making sense? In the first century, what you do see is you see a number of people who claim to be this Messiah figure. And the disciples themselves were thinking, maybe this is him. Maybe this is the one we've been waiting for, the chosen king. But nobody expected him to be the divine son of God. They expected him to be a person. I'm sure a very impressive person, but how many of you guys know there's a difference between divine son of God and really cool person? Yeah. Big difference, right? And so when Peter comes out with this, he says, I know exactly who you are. You are the Messiah, the son of the living God. Jesus is impressed. Yeah. This is how he shows he's impressed. He goes, whoa, <laughs> Simon. Blessed are you, because it wasn't a person that told you that, but it was revealed to you, right? What we see here is the greatest commendation of Peter in the Bible, right? This is Jesus being super impressed, and the rest of that verse is going to talk, he's going to say, and I see that you are Peter, and on this rock, I'm going to build my church, right? The gates of Hades will not prevail against it. He starts talking them up, but the point that I want to hone in on here today is that Jesus is impressed with Peter, and he gives them a huge affirmation, and I bet in that moment, Peter feels pretty dang good. I bet he feels loved right now. I bet he feels like, yes, because not only is Jesus Messiah, Son of the living God, but Jesus is destined, is promised to become King of Israel, right? Jesus is going to be the King of Israel, and guess what I'm going to be when that happens? I'm going to be Prime Minister. <laughs> That's what was going on in Peter's head. In fact, in other parts of Scripture, we see that the disciples are arguing with one another. Right? They're talking about who's going to be greatest when Jesus becomes king. So Peter's like, dude, I'm going to be Prime Minister. Dude, I nailed it. Remember? I said, son of the living God. And Jesus was like, whoa. Remember that? I bet that was in the argument. Right? I bet they were arguing about all this kind of stuff. So, geez, so Peter is excited, except something happens. And it happens like the very next thing. So if you just go down to verse 21, what happens is right after this episode, it says, from that time on, Jesus began to explain to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hands of the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Never, Lord, he said, this will never happen to you. And Jesus turned and he said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. So I want you to get this picture. In one moment, Peter 
gets the biggest thumbs up pat on the back he receives in the entire story. And in the very next moment, Jesus is pointing his finger at him and calling him Satan. That's a pretty dramatic fall from grace right there. That's a pretty big shift. Right? I bet Peter was really surprised. I bet he didn't expect that. I, I bet he was thinking, dude, Jesus loves me. Jesus loves me. Jesus believes in me. Right? Jesus sees who I am. He recognizes my great potential. He, he knows me. And then the next moment, Jesus is saying, get behind me, Satan. We got to put ourselves in Peter's shoes here and ask the question, why? Why, Jesus? Why are you being so capricious? Why in one moment are you like, I love you and you're awesome, and why in the next moment are you rebuking the heck out of me? And the answer is because Peter had no idea, no clue what the heck he was saying in that moment, right? He knew what he was saying. He was saying this. He was saying, Jesus, no, I love you so much. I believe in you, Jesus. You're going to go all the way. You're going to become king, Jesus. I believe in you. All that bad stuff that you think is going to happen to you, you're just having a bad day. You know, we all get that sometimes. We start to doubt ourselves. We start to feel insecure. I can't do Jesus, but it ain't going to happen. Don't worry, man. Everything's going to be okay. That's what Jesus, that's what Peter was trying to say. But do you know what else he was saying? He was saying something else there too. He was saying, no, Jesus, I got to be prime minister. This can't happen, Jesus. Not like that. I got my plans for you, Jesus. I got my goals, my dreams. And so when you start talking about dying and persecution and all that, it makes me start feeling really uncomfortable. That's what he was saying. Am I making sense? And so what you see here is that Peter, even though he's trying to do what's right, he's trying, I think, to encourage him, but he's also trying to manipulate him, right? He's trying to manipulate him. Why? Because he's invested in Jesus' destiny. Right? He's riding the boat of Messiah. Right? He's on the train. He's on the bandwagon. If Jesus fails, he fails. And right now what he's doing is he's projecting his fear right onto Jesus. Now we might think, oh, but that, none of that stuff affects Jesus. He's son of the living God. He doesn't, he doesn't do any, none of that works, right? And the answer to that is yes, but. Yes, but. It doesn't really affect him, but it kind of does. And what do I mean by that? I mean that scripture says that Jesus was not like some kind of righteous rock, right? He doesn't do anything. He just does the right thing. He's like a righteous robot, right? <laughs> That's not what it says. It says in Hebrews chapter 4, it says, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet he did not sin. In fact, we see this weakness of Jesus, and also in Luke 22, right before he's to go to the cross, what does he do? He goes to this garden of Gethsemane, 
and he prays and he prays because he knows what's going to happen. It says that he was sweating so much it was like blood and he prays. This prayer says, Father, if you are willing, take this cup from me, yet not my will, but yours be done. So what do we see? We see that Jesus is open to this kind of temptation. That's what we see. We see that there's a real temptation here for Jesus. And in fact, it's not the first time that he's heard it. Why does he call Peter Satan? Because in Peter's words, he heard the voice of Satan who had spoken to him some time before. If you remember, when Jesus first starts his ministry, he goes into the wilderness. And there the devil meets with him and tempts him three times. In Matthew 4, 8, it says this again. The devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. He said, all this I will give you, he said, if you will bow down and worship me. Now for us, again, there's a temptation for us to read that and be like, who was the devil kidding Right? You ain't going to tempt Jesus. But the reality is there was a temptation. There was a dream in Jesus' heart. And it was for the nations of the world. Right? He was chosen. Scripture says before the foundation of the world, he was designated. The Father said, one day, Jesus, you are going to be the king of kings, the Lord of lords. You're going to rule over all the nations. All of them are going to know you. And they're going to rightly understand who you are. And they're going to worship you. One day every knee will bow and tongue will confess. And they're going to know you and who you are. They're going to love serving you and worshiping you. That was the dream of Jesus' heart. I know it's weird to think about like that. Because we tend to think he's like God and he's just like sitting on a crazy chair and he's never tempted and he always does what's right. But you have to understand, even though Jesus is 100% God, he's also 100% human. It's weird, I know, but that's what the Bible says. And we get these pictures of Jesus in these moments of weaknesses where he's longing. He has this desire for the nations to know him. He has this desire for them, and yet he's offered the easy way. And the enemy comes and he says, I can give you this dream of your heart if all you have to do is worship me. And boom, it's all yours. I'll give it to you. You guys ever seen Lord of the Rings? I love that movie. Right? You see that? You see that? That episode, right? That, that part where Frodo's got the ring, right? And Galadriel, the crazy witch in the forest, right? She's like, she's like, oh, the ring, right? And he's like, you're so scary and awesome. I'll give it to you, right? And what you see is this incredible test where she's like, ah, she goes crazy. You guys remember the scene? Yeah. Tell me you guys are not too young for this. <laughs> I'm feeling really old. Some of y'all are like. <laughs> and, and, and then if you remember, she, she decides not to take the ring. And what she say? I passed the test, right? You know J.R. Tolkien took all this stuff from the Bible, just being honest. That's all, that's all. That's the Bible, right? Because that's exactly what happened right here, okay? Devil was going to, you can have it, right? And Jesus is like, no, i got to do it the right way. But how many of you guys know that the same temptation is one thing coming from your sworn enemy, and it's a whole other ballgame when it's your best friend? 
So when Peter, out of what's partly a good desire of his heart and partly a really bad desire of his heart, tempts Jesus in the same way. He says, no, none of this will happen to you. You don't have to go to the cross. Just flex your God muscles and kill all the people that are opposing you and take control, Jesus. You can do it. There's a real temptation in Jesus' heart where he's like, yeah, I don't want to go to the cross. I don't want to be separated from the Father. I want to do it the easy way. And it's a real temptation. And that's why Jesus rises up in his strength. How many of you guys know the real awesomeness of God is not in his omnipotent power. It is very impressive. I'm not trying to say it's not impressive. But that's not the most glorious thing about God. The most glorious thing about God is the person that he is. Right? The person of who God is. He's rich in love. He's slow to anger, abounding in love and kindness. This is the great glory of God in this moment. It's Jesus' glory that comes through. And he comes harshly against the temptation. He rebukes Peter. And he says, get behind me, Satan. I know that voice. You're a stumbling block to me. Why? Because you have on your mind not the concerns of God, but the concerns of men. And what the heck does he mean? What does he mean that you have the concerns of men in your mind and not the concerns of God? I'll tell you, because all of us do the exact same thing. The problem for Peter was that Peter couldn't see beyond his little world. His little world was all about Jews and Roman oppressors and him and catching fish and then, whoa, maybe I could be, you know, prime minister of the king. And his world is this little bubble right around Peter. And that's all Peter can see. How many of you guys know we do the same thing all the time? All we see is our own concerns, how we are going to benefit, how we can get the things that we want. But God's not like that. He sees everyone's concerns at the same time. We see just ours. God sees everyone. Or let me put it to you another way. When people steal from other people, how many of you guys know it's not because they're looking intently at how it's going to affect the person they're stealing from. It's not like they're thinking... Oh yeah, this is going to cause so much pain to his family. They're not thinking about that. Let me put it to you this way. When I was in college, freshman year of college, praise Jesus, a hundred years ago, this amazing thing came out called Napster. Right? And you guys have no idea what Napster is. Okay? It's Spotify kind of. It's... I don't know. It's, it, it's, a, it's a music sharing downloading program, okay? And it was the first of its kind, and it was like, it was the most glorious thing ever. I could have every Disney song in the library. No joke, one night I listened to Disney songs nonstop for like two hours, just all of them. That's me confessing, you know, my weakness. Don't share with everybody. I had, I had megabytes of songs. I know that didn't sound impressive. In that day, it was impressive, okay? Hundreds of mega 
day the Lord convicted me, he said, Dennis, you're stealing. I said, what? I was enjoying this great blessing you had given God. All the worship music I could want. You provided it for me. And God's like, no, you're stealing. I was like, Ugh. how many guys know I wasn't thinking about the musician and the artist. I was robbing the money every time I pressed download. I, they didn't even enter my mind. Yeah. And then I'm like, well, God, they're just a bunch of rich musicians. They don't care, right? They're just selling out rock concerts and doing drugs and all this kind of stuff. Everybody's doing it, God. What's the big deal? And God's like, get out of your own bubble. Get out of your own bubble. Consider that when you sin, other people are suffering. And I remember when I did this, I repented that night, tearfully deleted all the songs. <laughs> and I grew a conviction for this. And I grew a conviction that I would not steal. I would not steal with this. And what would happen later on is that God would bring all of these musicians to me. Right? And I went through a season where I was discipling all of these musicians, and many of them were trying to produce music. Trying, right? And guess what? Most musicians are not rolling in the money. Okay? Most musicians are broke, are really poor. I had a friend who was a gigging musician. He gigged out twice a week, and he was a swim coach on the side. Best drummer I ever met in my life. They ain't rich people. But I was helping myself to his music. Okay, my point is not, you know, that you're terrible if you're downloading music. But yes, you are terrible if you're downloading music. <laughs> okay, why? Because it's stealing. Because it's stealing, and you're not thinking beyond your own bubble. You're small-minded, like Peter. How many guys know people aren't thinking about the people who are suffering when they look at pornography? We're not thinking about those girls, those boys, sometimes those children. Don Hawkins, of the executive director of the National Center on Sexual Exploitation, said this. Drugs, alcohol, physical abuse, blackmail, threats, fake legal documents, deceitful enticing, promises of fame and money, and so much more are used to get the girls to perform what and how the producers desire. If you actually take the time to research the pornography industry, hopefully with a safe search filter on your browser while you're doing it, what you'll get is testimony after testimony of sexual exploitation and abuse over and over and over again. We're not thinking about them when we click. We're thinking about what we can get out of it. In a 2007 study, 49% of sex trafficked women said that pornography had been made of them while they were in prostitution. 47% said that they had been harmed by men who had either forced or tried to force their victims to do things the men had seen in porn. You have no idea if the person you're watching is a sex slave or not. The reality is that the statistics on this are scant because obviously it's a very secretive industry. But brothers and sisters, somebody is suffering when we look at pornography. We're not thinking about the people that we cheat on. We're not thinking about their boyfriends or girlfriends. We're not thinking about their husbands or wives. 
or their children whose families can be torn apart. We're thinking about our romance and how this might be the one. We're not thinking about abortion. We're not thinking about the babies that are killed. We want to close our eyes. We don't want to watch the videos of babies being torn apart. We don't want to see the pictures of buckets filled with tiny hands and feet. We want to stay in our own zone and just do what we need to do and turn our hearts off to those who are suffering by our action. Brothers and sisters, I don't say this to point out any one of you. I say this to point out all of us. Scripture is clear. We are no better than Peter. We are the small-minded ones. We are the broken ones. We are the ones who sin every single day in ignorance. Most of it. Most of your sin you have no idea about. Proverbs 21.2 says, Every way of a man is right in his own eyes. But the Lord weighs the heart. We don't recognize all the stuff, all the pain that we're causing in our life. Scripture says that our righteousness is as filthy rags. That our glory falls short of God's glory. And the temptation for all of us is to justify ourselves. To say, well, I'm not that much worse than the people around me. I'm a pretty good person. I try my best to be good. And I want to say that is commendable, but it is impossible. That's the problem. The problem is not that we don't try hard enough to be good. The problem is that it is impossible for us to be good. That we are corrupted by a sinful nature. Let me put it to you this way. You're not supposed to ever want bad things. Ever. You were not designed to ever want something that's bad. The fact that all of us are constantly fighting and warring against the evil desires of our hearts shows us that something is broken inside. That we have a capacity to imagine that I, what would it be like if I didn't have a sinful nature? What would it be like if I never desired to do evil? And we do this all the time. What would the world look like if there was no war, no exploitation? What would it look like? We have the capacity to imagine something that none of us have ever seen or ever experienced. Why? Because we're created in God's image. Because He made us with a specific design. Why do our hearts feel when we're wronged against, when somebody steals from us or sins against us? Why do we have this inner demand for justice? Why? Because we were designed in His image, brothers and sisters. Jesus rebuked Peter for two reasons. Not to condemn him, but to help him. This is the problem we make all the time. We're saying, God, don't point out my sin. I don't want to hear about it. I don't want to hear about the bad stuff that I do. I, want to, I don't want to see how really bad I am. And yet, Jesus is pointing it out not to condemn us. There's a temptation for all of us to think that correction is rejection. But it's not. 
teach you right from wrong. It's my job. I had a real heart-to-heart. -heart. I remember I was looking into his eyes last night. I said, Judah, you're my son. And I love you so much. I'm so proud of you. But I need you to trust me. I need you to trust me. He was so upset. He was crying the whole way home. He was crying the whole way home. I said, Judy, you have to trust me. I'm going to teach you to know right from wrong. I'm going to teach you. And I remember you looked at my eyes and said, okay, dad, dad. <laughs> Jesus rebuked Peter to help him and to protect his mission. In John 3, Jesus shares his mission. This is what he says. He says, For this is how God loved the world. He gave his one and only son so that everyone who believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. God sent his son into the world not to judge the world but to save the world through him. There is no judgment against anyone who believes in him. But anyone who does not believe in him has already been judged for not believing in God's one and only son. And the judgment is based on this fact. God's light came into the world, but people loved the darkness more than the light, for their actions were evil. All who do evil hate the light and refuse to go near it for fear their sins will be exposed. But those who do what is right come to the light so others can see that they are doing what God wants. Worship team, could you come up?